If you would turn in your Bibles to our Old Testament lesson, it's Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 32, which can be found on page 706 in your pew Bibles or 1348 in the large print pew Bibles. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. We thank you for all that you have, um, all that you have done. We thank you for the ways that you have been working in each of our lives, leading us to this moment. The things that you have brought us through in the past year, and Lord, we look forward to what you have in store for us in this coming year. Lord, we ask that um, that as we walk into the future of this year, or that we would walk each moment trusting you fully, loving you completely, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We know that's not anything that we can do on our own. So Lord, we ask that you would would do the work necessary in us, that you would grow us close to you by your spirit. We ask that even this morning, as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would continue forming us and shaping us into the likeness of your Son, by your word and by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean." I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain... And make it plentiful, and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the fields, so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel." Turning then to our New Testament lesson, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It's going to be found on page 862 in your pew Bibles, or 1650 in the large print. John writes, now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in a bit of a tight spot this morning. We are looking at 1 John, chapter 2, the last two verses there, and then the first ten verses of chapter 3. And this is a passage that I could preach on for a year of Sundays and still not have covered everything in this. This is a central passage in our identity of who we, what it means to be a Christian, who we are as Christians, how it is that we live, why we live that way, why it is that when we live that way, the world rejects us, and why it is that we shouldn't be bothered by that when they do reject us. There's a lot in here, and I will tell you right now, I'm just barely going to scratch the surface today, but I do want to take a look at our motivations for why we do right. Why is it that we do right? And something, doing what's right is something that we, uh, we try to do ourselves, I hope. It's something that we try to pass on to our children. It's something that we try to teach others to do as well. And whether it is, um, whether we set laws or whether we make personal rules, or make household rules. We have these, this is what is right. This is what you should do. But, we want to get behind that. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you should do this, but I tell you, it's like this. And he's always going deeper, going into the issues of the heart, and going to, the, it's not just what you do, it's why you do it. And it's so much deeper than we ever realized before. Well, all of our actions, of what we're doing, turn out to be deeper than we realized. And um, here is there's one way to take a look at that. You probably would not want to raise your children to be proud and arrogant, right? Probably not. You probably wouldn't want to raise your children to be selfish or fearful. And yet... Think about the ways in which we normally motivate right behavior. Oh, we don't want to, you don't want to do that because we are not like those people. Those people who do wrong, we are the ones who do right. And what are you encouraging? Pride. Arrogance. We're better than them. Okay, so that's probably not good. So then even if you do right, you're still encouraging something that is worse at heart. Okay, well, what about um, if you say, well, if, if you do what's wrong, you're going to get caught, you're going to get punished. And so now we're motivating by fear. And we become, we do the right things, but we're doing it out of motivation that is completely based in fear. And we become very fearful people. So once again, if you have the right action, 
but we're developing a very wrong heart. Or what if you say, well, no, I think that what the situation is, if you do what's right, then you will be rewarded. If you do the things that are right by God, then he will do good things for you. It's kind of a sort of instant karma situation. But what is that? If not a motivation of selfishness. I'm doing right not because I care about what's right, not because I care about who God is, but because I want what he can give me. And so our usual motivations for doing what's right in any situation is actually going to give us a heart that is not right. Do you see the problem? What do we do? And so the fourth option usually is, well, then just give up. Don't even do right then. Because obviously if we can't do right for the right reasons, then we shouldn't even try at all. Especially if it's not going to pay. But that's not what we're told, and that's not what we see throughout all of the Bible. But let me show you why we do right as Christians. And it's a very different situation. This is 1 John 2, 28-3.10. We're going to fly. It says, And now, dear children, continue in him, that is Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear what John is saying? We don't do right because we're better than somebody else. We don't do right because we're afraid of punishment. We don't do right because uh, we are seeking some other rewards. We do right because we have a relationship with God through Jesus. That we have been born into this relationship where we can call him our father. This is what Jesus taught. as The disciples said, how should we pray? And he said, here's how you should pray, like this. And he starts out, our father. And that, in and of itself, should blow our minds. You think about what David wrote in the Psalms when he says, you know, when I consider the heavens, when I consider the starry host, when I think about how how far the stars go, how many there are, you look up on a clear night and you see how many stars there are. This past fall, I went to two star parties. One just outside of El Dorado, one in uh, the McDonald Observatory. If you ever get a chance, take it. (laughs) Go and look through these telescopes where you can see not only the, the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of stars that we can't even count, 
as you look up in the night sky. But you get to see through these telescopes into galaxies that you can't even see with the naked eye. And you look up at all of this. And as the psalmist is saying, you know, when I look up at the sky and all the planets and the stars that you have made, wow, you are amazing and you are huge and you are great. And then I think, why do you care about me? Why would you care about someone as small as me? And here's the thing. Here's what John is saying. God doesn't just care for us as though, well, they've been made and they should probably, I should probably keep them alive. You know, I feel responsible for them now. It's not that he's got this sort of duty to care for us. It's that he has a love for us. And do you hear when we were reading in Ezekiel, he said, I'm not doing this because you deserve it. I'm doing this because of who I am. And who I am is gracious and loving and holy. And he loves us enough to not only create us, but then even when we've turned away from him to come back for us. And not just to come back and to care for us, taking care of our needs, but actually adopting us into his family as children. This is what uh, Paul actually says in Romans 8. Read it. Read it lots. Um, When he says that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's what he has in mind for us, to be his children, not only who are adopted into his family, but actually get born in at the same time. How cool is that? We can't really do that, but God can. He can adopt us in as his children and actually give us new birth with new life, put his spirit into us to where we then actually grow up with the family characteristics of God the Father, God the Son, and we have that by his Holy Spirit. This is why we do right, because it reflects who it is that we're growing to be. This is why we do right, because we have a relationship with the one who always does right. This is actually how we even know what right is. is as we look to him, as we look to his word, as we see the ways that he's revealed himself in Jesus. It's not about just what we feel like doing at the moment. But the more we look to him, the more we see what's right. The more we look to ourselves, the more we see, surely he doesn't love us, because of what we deserve, but because of his goodness. So as we look at this passage, just look with me very quickly. God loves... The reason we do right, first of all, is because we have been adopted as his children. We have been born again, given new life in him. Of course, the world is not going to recognize that. They didn't recognize Jesus when he came, and we can be expected... And we can expect to be treated the way that the world treated Jesus, who even though he came into the world that he created, the world did not recognize him. Why would we expect any different? But we have something to look forward to. We're not perfect yet, but that day is coming. We have not yet seen Jesus glorified, but when we do, it says we will be like him. We will see him as he is. So we do right because we are his children. We do right also... Because we have a relationship with him. There was a moment where um, Jesus was talking with some Pharisees and they said uh, they were Abraham's children. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? You're not Abraham's children. He actually said that they were children of the devil. Yikes. That's pretty strong. 
Why would he say they were children of the devil? He said, it's because you are actually doing the things that the devil's been doing from the beginning. You are carrying out his desires. You are showing that family resemblance. The reason we do right is because we have a relationship with God. Um, Does no one who... uh, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. If we have that relationship with him, if we have seen him, if we know him, if we are walking with him daily, does that mean that we're not ever going to fall into sin? That's not what it's saying. That's saying that when we sin, that we don't continue in it. As soon as that happens, we should, we should hate the sin in ourselves as much as God does. We should desire the things of God as much as he does. We should repent and turn back to him. And walk with him in all of it. And if we, can, if we can continue to walk comfortably in sin, and we're not bothered by it, then we want to re-examine our relationship with God because it may not be there. Or it may be something we've just made up. It may not be real. We do right because we're God's children. We do right because we have a relationship with him, and we also do right as a witness and a testimony to the world of what a relationship with God looks like, of who God is. You've heard it said before that um, there are <laughs> there are five gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the life of the Christian. And most people will never read the first four. Most people will never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they will look at our lives to see what it is that God is like. Will they see that in us? Yes, they will, if we have a living relationship with him. If we have really been born of his spirit and begin to grow in what Paul describes as the fruit of the spirit. Let me give you one illustration um, that I found particularly helpful. This was in a sermon uh, the pastor preached on John 3, where Jesus talked about being born again. He was talking, what does, this, what does this mean? And he said, you know, if you think about it in terms of fruit, if you had an apple orchard... And the, and, but you didn't want apples. You wanted to grow peaches. So you could go out there in your apple orchard and you could say, well, then what I need to do is I need to fertilize more and I need to really get my hands dirty. And so you go around and you fertilize and you fertilize and you water and you water and then you step back and, you, and it just keeps growing more apples. In fact, they're bigger now. And so I says, oh, okay, so now what I need to do is I need to go, I need to prune. That's what I need to do. I need to get rid of all those apples. So you start pruning, pruning, pruning on these apple trees and you keep on fertilizing, you keep on watering. It says, no matter how much you fertilize and water and prune, you're never going to grow peaches. The only way you're going to grow peaches in your apple orchard is to dig out all the apple trees at the root and replant with a new seed. This is what John says, is we actually have a new seed that is in us. And as we continue to grow we don't grow by our own effort of trying uh, more fertilizer, more water, more pruning. But by actually having his spirit in us. Last two verses. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. One commentator puts it this way. The author is not stressing absolute moral conformity or sinless perfection, but the one requirement by which all other requirements are measured, love for one's brother. 
For this, there is no substitute. Its violation allows for no excuse. Its application permits no compromise. Here, there are no gray areas, no third possibilities. One either loves his brother and proves he is God's child, or does not love his brother and proves he belongs to the devil. Yikes. It's either or. We are with God or we are against him. And I will tell you, we've tried to divide things up too often in the church where um, we pit love and righteousness against each other. And so you have, in the modern American church, you have kind of the, the liberal side of things where it is all about love. Who cares about righteousness? Of course, to do that, you have to redefine love. But then in the more conservative end of the church, you have, it's all about righteousness. But who cares about love? Of course, then you have to redefine righteousness. As another commentator put it, what John is doing here is he is putting it all together. It says, for him, righteousness and love are inseparable. Since they are inseparable in the character of God and in his revelation in Christ, so they must be inseparable in the lives of his people. Jesus was asked, what are the two great, or what is the greatest commandment? If we want to live a life of righteousness, if we want to live in obedience to all his commands, what do we do? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourselves. And then he said, all the law and the prophets, everything else hangs on these two. They all hold together. We cannot do right if we're not loving. And we cannot love if we're not doing right. Because it all holds together as we are children of God, growing up in him to be like him and to show his love and his light and his glory to the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.